Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Before we start, just a heads up. As you might expect, there's some violence and adult language in here. So if you've got kids around, you may want to throw on some headphones first. Thanks. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, I'm Ellie Honig, and this is Up Against the Mob. Not all mob cooperators are created equal. Truth is, there's a hierarchy of sorts. The most common type of cooperator, the lowest level on the pyramid, if you will, is the mobster who flips after he's been charged. You charge a guy with murder or other crimes, you make the arrest, everyone knows about it, it's public. And then he decides he doesn't want to risk doing life for a few decades behind bars. So he comes in to offer up to prosecutors whatever information he's got on other mobsters. Don't get me wrong. It's a big deal to flip somebody this way. And these cooperators can make major cases. I've done them. But these cooperators are also a bit limited. All they can do is tell you about things that have happened in the past. And often all you have to go on is their word. There usually aren't tapes, for example, to back them up about conversations they once had. And these cooperators are the most vulnerable when it comes time for trial. Any defense lawyer knows how to attack them. You only flipped once you got charged. You're just trying to save your own hide. You just want to say whatever the prosecutor wants to hear. The next level up the hierarchy, so to speak, is the mobster who flips before he gets arrested. Now, this takes some luck and some skill from the law enforcement side. You have to know who to target who might be vulnerable or disillusioned or on the outs, who might be willing to flip and do some work for you. You need good street intel and you need a great FBI agent who can approach that person and convince him to flip without putting on the handcuffs first. When I was a prosecutor, my partners in the FBI and I tried this many times. Most of the time, the mobster politely told the FBI agent to, well, get lost. Most of the time, but not all. A handful of times, it worked. We flipped a guy without arresting him while he was still on the streets. And the beauty of this situation is nobody knows he's cooperating. He hasn't been arrested, so there's no public record, no reason to suspect him. So this kind of cooperator can give you real-time information about what's happening in the mob. And the FBI can wire him up, have him wear a recording device as he goes about his daily business. When that happens... Then you get daily recordings of mobsters talking about their own crimes in their own words. Now, I won't try to glamorize it. A lot of those tapes were boring. We'd tell these cooperators to just turn the recording device on when he left his home, turn it off when he got back home, and don't touch it in between. As a result, we wound up with hours of tape at a time, sometimes six, seven, eight hours and a lot of it was downtime. Endless hours of these guys hanging out, doing nothing much, drinking or talking about partying or watching football on Sundays. But for every few hours of small talk, you'd get a golden nugget, a conversation that was clearly about an ongoing extortion. Guys talking about beatings they'd given or sports gambling accounts they managed, drug deals they needed to collect on. 
In one especially lucky moment, our wired up cooperator and another guy, Todd LaBarca, scarfed down hot dogs from a street vendor when LaBarca abruptly admitted, bragged really, that he was in on an unsolved murder that had happened seven years before and he named the other people who did it with him. But there's even one level above that on the hierarchy of mob informants, the FBI undercover. If you can get a law enforcement agent embedded with the mob, accepted as one of their own, now that's a goldmine. And while the movies might make you believe this is a regular occurrence, FBI agent goes deep cover, earns the mob's trust, makes his way up through the ranks, the truth is it's only really ever happened twice. The first one you know about. Joe Pistone, also known as Donnie Brasco, famously played by Johnny Depp in the great 1997 movie. That movie has its embellishments, but that actually did happen. And the second one is today's guest, Joaquin Garcia, or Big Jack, as he was known to his FBI colleagues, or Jack Falcone, as he was known to the Gambino family crew that considered him one of their own for over two years. Welcome, Jack Garcia. Jack, thank you for joining me today. So one thing that you've said before, Jack, that I found so interesting is you said there's really no such thing as an FBI undercover when it comes to the mafia. Explain what you meant by that. I've done over 100 undercover operations for the Bureau, ranging from police corruption, political corruption, and of course, uh, narcotics. And uh, it's a whole different world because you can go into that scene in whatever uh, identity you create. But however, when you go into working undercover in the mob, I mean, there, there are rules to play by. Uh, you have to show deference. You have to basically have a backstory or somebody that knows you and vouches for you so well. So, you know, it, it is a harder group to infiltrate because of their distrustful nature. And you talk about the importance of developing this sort of mafia undercover identity. Now, when the time came for you to try to penetrate the mob, and as you said, you had previously done drug trafficking crews, money laundering crews, street gangs, but when it came time for you to try to break into the Gambino family, tell us specifically what went into the creation of this identity. How did the FBI backstop you? Well, it was really bizarre the way this came about. Um, I had worked uh, with um, the agent Nat Nat Parisi, and uh, Nat had been working some organized crime cases, and I did some case with him with a Russian investigation. So he came up to me and said, hey, listen, are you interested in, in going undercover? We have a strip club that was being shaken down by the Albanians as well as some aspects of organized crime. And we wanted somebody who was matured, experienced, and could maybe handle themselves in infiltrating so we could identify the Albanian organization and take it down. So the case was originally designed to go as a a quick turnaround case. It was not at all intended to go in and infiltrate the mob. It was for me to get the information as to who was involved, who were the Albanians involved, and of course, who was the organized crime figures that appeared at the strip club after the Albanians demanded uh, protection money from the strip club owner. The Albanians were in there destroying, demanding money, and after they made a big scene where they slapped some customers around, 
and of course, rob money from the owner. Then the next day, this guy wearing a beautiful Brioni suit shows up with his alligator suits, and he says, hey, I heard you had a problem. We can make your problem go away. But for that, you're going to have to pay us. And I paid off the um, uh, organized crime guy, the guy by the name of Louis Filippelli, who is now a captain in the Gambino crime family, paid him off to ensure that the Albanians would not come in and cause any damage, which in hindsight, it was your typical textbook extortion where you create a situation and then you offer a solution. So that's when we changed focus from the Albanians and went directly into organized crime. Working with his partners at the FBI in the Southern District of New York, Jack then turned his focus to the Gambino organized crime family, specifically a crew led by a notorious, widely feared captain named Greg De Palma. So the decision gets made to, to target this Gambino captain, powerful guy, Greg De Palma. Now, now it's time for you to develop an undercover identity. So first of all, what name did you use as your FBI undercover name? Well, we thought of all kinds of names. First of all, going into a role posing as an Italian and working organized crime was all new to me, Ellie. My whole career, because I was born in Cuba, I came to this country when I was nine, I speak Spanish fluently. So all I ever did was work um, in narcotics, either as a drug trafficker, a transporter, a money launderer. That was kind of my, my expertise. And now... They said, well, look, we want to get you in with these people, and I think you could pull it off posing as an Italian. So it was kind of like a, I said, really? You know, but I says, I like, you know, I like black beans and fried bananas, and uh, and I also do like pasta, too. Don't get me wrong. So he goes, yeah, but don't worry about Nat Parisi, the case agent, who himself is Italian, He said, I could teach you all of that, the right things to say, what to do. We'll establish this whole backstory about you that would go totally believable. And trust me, I think you're going to be able to do it. So they decided to come up, come up with a name. I said, well, why don't we get the name Falcone or as Falcone, as they say in Italian, as a tribute to Judge Giovanni Falcone, who was the magistrate in Italy that was killed by organized crime. So I did it as a kind of tribute to Judge Falcone as let me take on his name. In hindsight, that was a dumb move on my part because I was asked very numerous times, hey, are you related to this Falcone? So because my reputation, my, my backstory was I was a third, fourth generation Sicilian And they were concerned whether I had any roots with Judge Falcone. With law enforcement. So your name became Jack Falcone or Jack Falcone. Now, the Jack, your real name is Jack. Is is that intentional that you would keep as your undercover first name the actual same first name that you have in real life? Well, that's a preference. I've done a lot of cases where I've used Manny, Jose, and whatever other names you want. But it's easier to use because let's say, for instance, Ali, I'm at a restaurant and you're, you don't know if I see you and you don't know that I'm working undercover, you'll say, hey, Jack, how you doing? So, of course, I would get up and I did this to, uh, on several occasions to people that I've known. I get up and go, hey, how you doing? 
and I get the guy aside or, or something and say, get away from here or else I get in their face and deny it. So that's kind of the reason because you don't want to say your name is Joe and then you got a couple of guys calling you Jack and then next thing you know, that's going to... See, and that's the interesting thing about working undercover, not just in organized crime. What you want to do is you don't want to have any kind of failures or doubts that the subjects are going to all of a sudden envision you as like, wait a minute, there was a lie here and a lie there and this is another. And all of a sudden now they're looking at you strangely. So you don't want anything to go wrong with you and be able them to suspect you in any kind of way of who you are. So to that end, what are some of the other measures that you and the FBI took to make sure you were backstopped, to make sure that if they checked into Jack Falcone, as they did, that you were covered? What were some of the documents and official things that you got done? Well, they, the first thing was the, the backstory. Like, where did Jack Falcone come from? Now, I knew Miami, I guess because I'm Cuban and I know Miami quite well. We felt that that would be a good story, that I'm from Miami as well as I grew up there and I had, of course, friends dropped out of school and had many friends who were involved in the drug trafficking business. Now, some of those so-called friends were my informants when I worked narcotics. So in the event there was any doubt, these traffickers or something was ever to be contacted, they would, of course, vouch for me. I knew Miami like the back of my hand, so I felt comfortable for that. They came up with, of course, a Miami driver's license. Then, of course, changed that to a New York driver's license. We then drew up a crime history of me where I had been arrested, never in prison. Now, keep in mind, you don't want to say you were in Lewisburg because half the wise guys have all done prison times. And, you know, Ellie, the last thing you want to say is, yeah, I did a nickel five years in uh, at Lewisburg, and then the guy will say, hey, that's funny. You know, Joey Potts and Pants was there at that time. You know Joey. And next thing you know, you get trapped in it. So, yeah, you can have numerous arrests. You get bailed. You beat it the whole nine yards. So we drew up somewhat of a, a shaky criminal history that was good. We took it a step further where I went, since they had me when my parents died, uh, when I was a little younger and uh, than I was uh, at the time, was we went to a uh, the cemetery and we scattered all we checked all the cemeteries and finally found a Mr. and Mrs. Falcone who had passed away. Now the logic for that, Ellie, is simple. I go down in Florida with say Robert Vaccaro, who was a soldier, or even Greg De Palma. And let's say Greg's sitting around at the pool and he says, Hey, you know what? Let's go see uh, we're down here. This is your hometown. Let's go pay our respects to your parents. Now, they could be saying it in a nice kind of way. What do you do? So now I had to make sure that my I's were dotted and my T's were crossed. In organized crime, they need to know everything about your life. So I created a history. I dropped out of school at an early age. My parents, I was raised and grew up with Cubans. So I did speak Spanish uh, very broken. I, of course, I'm a native speaker, but I, I, I posed that role we created as far as Social Security was concerned. All of these documents and previous addresses that we've had, we had through a contacts and realtors just to make sure that my backstop was secure because you didn't want to raise the doubts like we have mentioned earlier. Do you still have your Jack Falcone 
uh, driver's license. No, they took everything from me, Ellie. They even took my underwear. They meaning the FBI, right? Well, yes. They took everything. I had, of course, some beautiful suits that were handmade. I had the alligator shoes. I had the Rolex president, the four-carat pinky ring, the bracelet, the necklaces. At the end of it, everything was gone. I said to them, can I at least buy this? And they said, no, it's property purchase. So, of course, they even got my socks and underwear. Now, Ellie, you know how big I am. What other agent's going to fit in those uh, 4XL underwear? I don't know if that's going to be reusable, but it's probably in a plastic bag in an evidence uh, (laughs) warehouse somewhere. (laughs) Or it's been burned. Beyond the nuts and bolts of creating your identity, your social security number and driver's license and rap sheet and parents' graves, tell us a little bit about the demeanor, the attitude that you used when working undercover in the mob. Criminals, as, as you know, live and play by their own set of rules, okay? You don't want to go into a scene as an undercover in any type of work you do, but especially with organized crime, of you being a mark. You know, you need to have some kind of, uh, you know, sway about yourself of somebody who, who you know, is a guy who's out there and he is as much of a criminal as anybody else, in other words, people always say, well, how do I get in the mob? It's not like you you answer an ad in the classified sections. And it's not where you hang around these guys because they're distrustful. And next thing you know, they're going to put you in the trunk of a car. So it comes in, you know, you do it slowly. You don't go and, and push yourself on them. But you have to show these people that you're not only an earner, okay, a guy who makes money, but you also know how to kick up. One of the things we did is we would give Greg tribute payments. Like I said here, we had a score down in Miami. I got this done. Here's a little taste for you. It's funny how, how when the money's flowing in the mob, they tend to ask fewer questions and, and fall in love with you quicker, Bingo. right? Bingo, exactly, Ellie. And it is the greed factor that we use in order to infiltrate that. And they'll overlook all those peccadillos they will totally overlook that because it's money coming in. So in the mob, as you know, you have to be an individual who knows how to play by the rules, who has got to kick up money because money, as you know, only goes up. It never comes down. And then you have to be an individual who is prepared to do time in prison and last that you're capable of violence. So those are kind of the factors that they're looking for in order to be proposed. But, you know, the money part of it, and I found that it worked because a couple of times when we were at mob meetings, Greg saw me as an earner, a guy who also, we went to PC Richards, we actually bought plasma TVs, sold it to the boss of the family, Arnold Scutieri, and Tony Migali, the underboss, and, you know, at such a giveaway stolen price, you know, But he saw me as a guy who was out making money. So he's not going to have me go with a binny bag of donuts to go hijack a truck or to go slap somebody around because they owe money. So he kind of protected me because I did the right thing. I took care of him. So as you know, too, Ellie, I was directly dealing with a captain. And in that world, there are steps. There are Uh, caste systems. You have your associates who report to soldiers. Soldiers go to captains. Captains then go to the administration 
which is the concierge and the captain, uh, the boss and the underboard. But here I am, a guy who after about a year and a half, I'm already the Greg De Palma's loving me because I tolerated him, you know? I tolerated him. I, I, he felt that I was older, a little wiser. He was the kind of guy, he he was so nostalgic, loved to watch uh, Western movies. And he would call me up. He goes, hey, Jackie boy, you know, what do you think of this movie, Real Bravo, you know, and and, and all of this. So we we would talk and, and he kind of liked it that he made me his driver. Now, one of the things that Greg did, which is interesting, you talk about the back, you got to play by the rules they have. And one of the first times when Greg De Palma texted me, oh, no, I'm sorry, at that time we had the uh, Nextel phone. So he, he two-wayed me and I didn't answer because I was in the middle of another job in Florida. I come back and he says to me, well, where were you? So I said, I was down in Florida. I told you I was going down. I bought you a little something, you know? He goes, you didn't answer the phone when I call you. So he goes, Jackie boy, now listen to me. When I call you, I don't care what time of day it is. I don't care what you're doing, but you got to call me back. Do you understand me? And I say, yeah, but you know why? It's fine. He says, look, how do I know you ain't been locked up? How do I know you're not singing to the feds? I need to have you available at any time of day. And he not only did that with me, he did that with his crew. But I answered every bell. And I tell you what I even did. My mother-in-law passed away. I was at her funeral and he two-wayed me. And you know what I did? I answered it. I answered it. And why did I answer that? Because if I didn't, it would set me back. That's the rules. Yeah. And, and De Palma, who we'll talk about, was obviously a, a particularly controlling guy. Um, one of the things that you talk about in, in sort of adopting your undercover persona is that some guys you say work undercover and they talk too much. Wise guys don't ask questions. And, and I had experience with that when I had not undercovers, but guys who had flipped wearing wires in the street. Sometimes we would say, oh, right there. Why didn't you ask him about the robbery? And, and they would go, because they'll know I'm a cooperator. They'll kill me. So talk a little bit about that approach of getting information, but not asking too many questions. Ellie, that is beautifully said. That is so true. And that's what sets a great undercover from a good or a, a mediocre undercover, okay? you Sometimes you'll get the case agent who has a different agenda. Their agenda is to make a case to satisfy you guys, the United States attorneys. So what happens is when you're out there, before you go through with the objective of the day or what your mission is going to be, there are many factors you have to look. You have to look at the guy's body language. You have to look at the way he's looking, how he's behaving, you know, how to push it to a certain level. And my philosophy was, if I cannot ask that today, thank God for tomorrow, because that's what God invented tomorrow for. Because I'm not going to say something stupid or something that's going to raise him up just so I can get it on tape. I always felt that there are certain times, and that's how... I've always taught when I was a, a, a teacher at the undercover school, I would just say, look, man, if you feel the time is right, don't ask those questions. 
you know, wait to tomorrow. Wait for the right time opportunity that you have. Right. Now, Jack, you talked about taping, right? The idea that whenever you were out there dealing with these mob guys, you were recording. Now, I don't want you to give away state secrets, and this technology has evolved in the years since you did it, but would there have been some sort of physical way to tell if someone looked at you or you had to take a shirt off or something like that? And did you ever have any close calls? As far as uh, anybody ever patting me now down, no, that never happened. A lot has to do because of my size. When I was working dope, I had the long hair, the earrings, the whole thing, right? So it, it never happened. But I'm also a big believer is that when you start to wonder whether you can trust someone or not, that is exactly, you already know that that person does it. So meaning that if that person decides to pat you down, do you think he is going to change his attitude about you because he found nothing? He patted you down for a reason. And that's a pretty dramatic thing, right? If It's almost an accusation in the mob. It's an, exactly what it is, an accusation. And that's why I've always said to myself, if that individual, if I'm doing a dope deal and that guy wants me to take my shirt off and do it, I'm not going back to this guy. We're going to go out and do something else. Because what are you going to prove? That means this guy is already looking at you as you're a rat and you're out to get me. You're not going to be able to ever get that out of his mind. He doesn't trust you, period. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I want to talk about, because you talk about it a bit in your book, the look. You say you have to have the look to fit in with the mob guys. So look, we see the movies and the TV, but really on the streets, what was the look? Like what would a mob guy be wearing and what would he look like if he had that right look on the streets? Well, you know, it's funny. It's central casting Goodfellas, okay? Guys are walking around. I remember one time we all had these uh, Sergio Tacchini uh, jogging suits. Nobody does any jogging in the mob. <laughs> no, the only no, jogging I've not you seen do that. is when you run, <laughs> you run away from the cops. Right. That's the only jogging you do. <laughs> right? So you're wearing these things. Everybody's smoking a cigarette. Everybody's fat. Like, you know, and you're walking around with a training suit. You got to be kidding me, right? Uh, so, but it's a, it's a persona. Your cars are pristine. You wash them all the time. It's all clean. It's all about an image. Like when you go out, you need to have that knot, that money and that broccoli band that looks like that's a sign that you're making it, that you're not a brokester. You're not a mort de femme. You know, you're not one of these deadbeats. You, you're, you're doing well for yourself. Your hair is cut. You get finger nail. I used to go with Greg to get Manny petties. Okay, I'm 6'4", 395 pounds getting a mani-pedi. Are you kidding me or what? Let me say, people are always surprised by that. What's with the mobsters with the mani-pedis? They all do it. They all get the nails clear, right? Only clear uh, yes. mani-pedis. They all do it. What? I, what is it's that? So, so true. They do that as part of, you know, again, they're living a clean life. They're all clean shaven. And Greg De Palma told me to shave mine off. Now, the stories for that is, 
I've heard many reasons. One is, number one, we got nothing to hide, okay? We're also, some people put on a beard and they look tough. Hey, we are tough with, with or without a beard, you know? So everything is clean shaven. You're walking around with the Matty Petty. Your car is clean. You got your knot of money. You got your obligatory pinky ring. You got your Rolex watch. You got your cross. And just the way you, you, you carry yourself. And the key thing is to show in respect and also, you know, deference to all these people in the life. I remember at the club, there was a lot of hanger-ons who was, hey, Jackie boy, you want me to go wash your car? You need anything, some cigars, some cigarettes? What do you want me to get? There are all these people. I mean, it's a whole total subculture that exists where people glamorize these organized crime people as, as celebrities, for lack of better words. We would go to restaurants and we would automatically, waiters would trip themselves over each other just to service. And yet now, adjusting that on my own life, when I take my wife out to dinner, I get directed to the bar. Your table's not ready. That never happened to me when I was on the street. I'm glad you brought up restaurants because we've got to talk food here. And I'm not a foodie, but I, but I, I can put it down. And I'm sure you can too. So you ate a lot of meals with these guys. What was the food like? What was the, what was the like, what would an average dinner where you're sitting there with Greg De Palma and a couple guys in his crew, what would you guys put down? All right, well, first of all, no menus. No menus, okay. Nobody has menus, okay? Either the waiter, the maitre d' or the actual chef comes out. And it always began, what am I eating today? That's what you say to the waiter. Right, what am I eating today? And that, of course, you know, so he says, the chef got this delicious new, you know, bacalao, he's made this, this, and Okay, bring that out. What do we got for appetite? Bring them out. You ate like you were on a cruise ship and you were going to the chair. That's what you do. You eat nonstop around the clock. My day began at the at having breakfast at the diner where you're having eggs, bacon, sausage, uh, this uh, French toast. And, and again, just plates and plates and plates of it, right? Then after that, you go and do what you got to do. And then in the case, you go to lunch. And then from a lunch, then you go back to the club. Somebody brings in pastries. Somebody brings in you know, the cannolis, and, and next thing you know, you're at dinner, and then you're back at the club drinking, and then next thing you know, 2 o'clock in the morning, you're out at City Island eating. Right, right. But but you got to have the jogging suit ready, though, right? Just you have case. to have your jogging <laughs> suit. You can't have any, they used to call them Italian war medals. You know, when you spill some gravy on your shirt? Stains, yeah. Yeah, they call that an Italian war medal. You can't have stains on. And I'm telling you, you I've never eaten so much. I blew up at Ellie. The best part is, I had Judge, I think it was uh, Judge Harpster in the case, um, who tried our case with Greg De Palma. Okay, Judge Hellerstein, right? Yes, Hellerstein, I'm sorry. You're right. And I never forget, we're playing tape after tape after tape, and all the tapes are around dinner. And of course, nobody is please pass the jelly kind of stuff going on, you know? This is like a bunch of animals just eating and eating and eating, right? And talking with their mouth full, stuff coming out of their mouth. Forget about it. It was insane, right? So all of a sudden, Judge stops and he goes, Agent Garcia, every single tape that I've been listening to, you guys are cursing. You guys are eating. There's obviously, there is no etiquette going on. This is unbelievable. How much food and how much weight did you gain? So I said to the judge, Judge, 
It was a nonstop food fest. I gained over 80 pounds. Now, what was funny is all of the media, Ellie, was in another room with the testimony being piped in. The next day, I opened the daily news. It says, fat fellas, undercover agent gains 80 pounds while him and mobsters ate their way through New York. You had to know that was going to be what, what the oh, media Oh, yeah, without caught. a doubt. And then it said, the one of them goes, he was one of the, you ready for this? Wide guys. Wide guys, yep. no, yeah. Then, but wait, Ellie, the best part, he says, the one svelte agent. Svelte. I never even know what that meant. I, I had to look it skinny. up. Svelte agent. Yeah, I was never skinny. <laughs> the, uh, the 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 New York Post and Daily News have a ball with the uh, with the mob puns. Was there a line for you as an FBI agent regarding acts of violence? In other words, were there any crimes you were allowed to participate in or observe? And what were the rules about an act of violence? That is always a um, uh, a sensitive topic. Okay, just like with informants, there are things that they can and cannot do. Well, of course, an agent can't. Uh, and cannot do certain things. But I always look at that as there are rules, right? And then you have to do the right thing. Like, I'm not going to beat up on an innocent person, okay? But I will defend myself. If somebody comes and, and hits me, I'm hitting them back. That's the street rules, okay? But you don't go and abuse. You don't shake down people. Uh, uh, personally, of course, the use of drugs you know, now, here's a, some interesting observation. What happens, Ellie, if you're undercover and working dope and somebody comes up to you and they don't trust you and say, hold the gun to your head and says, how do I know you're not a cop? Do the line. Do this coke, yeah. Or I'll shoot you. What, what do, do you, you do? do? Well, what I would do is if I know that I can't talk myself out of it, and I pretty much talk myself out of a lot of stuff. Right. You know, but if I can't, I would actually do it because you know why? I'm going to live. I'll leave the meeting. I'll go to the hospital. Hopefully, I'm not going to die of a heart attack. But fortunately, that never happened with me because of my size. And if dad ever said that to me, I would say, what are you, crazy? I got a bad ticker. I do that. I'm dead. Then you got a problem with it. But these are things that you, you have to make on your own. As far as killing people, absolutely not. I mean, there have been rumors of certain people saying, well, if I had to kill somebody, absolutely. There's, this is a case, okay? That's all it is. You're, you're not going to stop organized crime with a case. You're not going to stop the drug flow with doing something stupid that can get you hurt or compromise your ethics. Now, there was one incident where you were unexpectedly present for a pretty vicious act of violence. Tell us about the Bloomingdale's incident. That was a classic day, I tell you. Here I am for like a couple of weeks before Greg De Palma, and you mentioned this before, Ellie, it's all about the greed. It's all about the money. So Greg De Palma gets a sign as a captain. He gets a soldier by the name of Peter Piccini, or his real name is, they go by Petey Chops. Now, Petey Chop was this millionaire bookmaker from the Bronx who had a lot of uh, juice in the Bronx and all that. But the problem was Petey Chops was not reporting and by reporting, I mean giving Greg, as you should do as a soldier, give them a taste of money. Give him his weekly take. His tribute. So that was infuriating Greg De Palma. So what happened was they said that they had information that Petey Chops would always go, I think it was a Monday or Tuesday, I forget the day, 
but they would always go to the cafe on top of Bloomingdale's White Plains, and he would sit around there, drink coffee, have something to eat with his gumad, his girlfriend, and he would then leave. So we go on. Greg has information that, that it was like a, a SWAT assault team. It was unbelievable. <laughs> like he knew everything about the intelligence was spot on. Right. We get there. We go up to the place. Greg asked the guy, has he seen him? He goes, no, I haven't seen him here yet. We're walking around. Then all of a sudden I see Petey Chops walking with the two. I didn't know it was Petey Chops, by the way. I see him with two women walking over to the place. Greg calls him. He goes, there he is. He gets in conversation with them. That escalates to like, hey, I don't get it. The guy was saying, look, I'm being followed. He goes, what do you think? We're not being followed? I says, why are you any different than us? I says, you ain't coming in. You're supposed to come in, and I want you to come here tomorrow. Do you understand that? He goes, what do you think we're doing here? I says, how do you think you're operating? You're operating under our flag, and that is the Gambino crime fam. So he says, I want you to come in. He goes, I'm not coming in. Everybody's hot. The cops are on it. The feds are everywhere. And then he's raising his mouth. Greg goes, keep your mouth shut. Next thing you know, Robert Vaccaro, who was standing next to me, right there in the candelabra section by the housewares, and he tells the guy, hey, keep it down. And, of course, Petey Chops goes, F you. Who are you? Because, you know, none of your business. Get out of here. He goes, it is my business. You're running your mouth. Do you understand? Now, you play by these. You know the rules. Now, play by them. So the guys got into this back and forth. Next thing you know, Vaccaro grabs this candlestick uh, uh, made by uh, Costa Boda, which is like really a bar weight. That's kind of what it weighs like. Cracks this guy's over the head. This guy's bleeding profusely. He drops down. I'm saying, I cannot believe this is happening here. So he goes to hit him again. I grabbed it from his arm and I go, Robert, I says, what are you doing? I said, look at these people out here. They're seeing this. We're bringing this scene. Cops are going to come. Come on, let's get out of here. You know, now keep in mind, this is Washington. I think it was President's Day at 630 in the afternoon out of Bloomingdale's. Out of Bloomingdale's. So, right. And Bloomingdale's, right? So there are strollers, there are people, and they're hearing the every other word was F this, mother that, and I'm going to kill you, you know? This guy goes down. He's freaking like little canaries going around his head. So I said, come on, let's get out of here. The guy gets up and he goes, what, what happened? What, what did you do that for? Oh, why? You know who I am? You know, one of those things. And the guy goes to him, goes, you better show up tomorrow. Do you understand me? And then as I'm grabbing Robert to walk away, Robert grabs one of the knives from a place setting. And he goes, I'm going to stab you in the eye. I says, put that down. What are you? Let's get out of here. So as we're walking down the escalator, we're going down the escalator with Greg, myself. I'm covered in blood, right? Because I, I got in the middle of this thing. Robert is going crazy. And Robert was, uh, you know, Mike, he's, he was a hardcore guy. We're going down. All of a sudden, security's coming up. And, and you see Petey Chops up on top, holding up, bleeding all over, saying, why did you do this? Why? Why, Greg? Why? And as he's walking up, Greg says, hey, that guy's going to sue you guys. He fell down the stairs, you know? <laughs> to the Bloomingdale staff. <laughs> through, yeah, through the Bloomingdale. We get in the car, and I'm driving, and I'm going, oh, my. And you hear the first thing out of Greg's mouth was, he goes, Robert, what are you doing? You can't do that. You can't raise your fist on your arms to any guy that's straightened out. What is the matter with you? He goes, well, he pissed me off. And I go, it doesn't matter. You got to go on record with this. 
And by that, he meant he had to go to the boss and tell him what happened. He goes, but look, I got this covered. Pete Vicini, Petey Chops has to go through me. I'm his skipper. He has to file the complaint to me and I bounce it up. I'll handle it when the minute he handles it to me. Right. Right. So I'm going, well, these guys know I'm not a made guy. This is involved. And then Greg was saying, hey, Jackie boy, you should have taken a couple of licks. I go, what are you crazy? The, <laughs> the guy was down already. Take a couple of licks. Right. So the next day we're pulling up um, and there is Petey Chops look like Yankee Doodle Dandy with this thing wrapped around his head, walking out. Greg the bomber goes, uh, yeah, he just get he finally stopped paying. But of course, no money is given to to any of us because that's the way it rolls. It rolls uphill. But that was kind of a, a, a bizarre instance to show you how this life really works because that's not supposed to happen. They're putting the arms on, on hands on somebody, uh, especially who's been straightened out. And the fact that nothing was done ever kicked up or complain about it. So Petey Chops finally decided to do what he's supposed to have been done and stop paying in order to work under the the flag of the Gambino crime family. And, and so you're there witnessing this. This is happening right in front of you. Right and in front of you. And you're an FBI agent, I mean, under it all. And so you had to essentially jump in and stop Robert Vaccaro. I, from, I had from, to stop him yeah. because if, Ellie, if he would have hit him again, he would have killed him. There's not a doubt in my mind. Now, you got very, very close as as an FBI undercover to getting made. And that's a sort of magical threshold that's never been crossed. But if, boy, if the FBI could ever get a guy made, tell us about how close you were and, and why it didn't quite happen. Well, Greg told me early on that he was going to propose me for many reasons. One, he, he liked me. That's obvious. Two, is that he saw a different shift in uh, people getting straightened out. He called some of these people, he used to call them garbage cans. You know, these guys are, uh, they're not equipped. He goes, I'm going to straighten you out, Jackie boy. He says, I'm putting your name on the list. Now, we had information from someone else that corroborated that. So we now are, we're put in a situation that we were waiting. But then what happened if you recall, I was going to go probably either on a Christmas list or something. It was being delayed because Joe Messino came out. Joe Messino was the boss of the Bonanos and cooperated. And they knew, and I was funny because I have tapes where I was in conversation with Robert Vaccaro, who was a soldier, and I was in conversations with Greg, and they were both saying, we got information that somebody big is ratting. And we know something is going on, so everything is put on hold. And then, of course, this came through. The Bureau, however, did not want to continue. Now, there was never any doubt or anybody doubting that who I claimed to have been, Jack Falcone. They just felt that, you know what, we, we got the, the hierarchy, the, the boss and the underboss and some of these captains, soldiers and associates that you know what, we're, we're just going to go with it. I fought that and thought the Bureau was kind of short-sighted because this gave us an opportunity to sit at that table by getting me straightened out to maybe find out what was going on within the inside of the Gambino crime family as well as introduce other undercover agents to other operations and other crime families 
in, in New York as well as the United States. So I fought as much as I could, but it was to no avail. Jack's years of work as an undercover culminated in a takedown, a coordinated series of 11 arrests in one day of Gambino crime family powerhouses, including Greg De Palma. I want you to take us to the day when the takedown happened, when your years of work culminated in a massive indictment and sweep of guys like Greg De Palma and other people who you had been living with and and hanging around with for years. Tell us, first of all, just give us a quick overview of who was taken down that day and, and how did it feel for you to see Greg De Palma put in cuffs? Well, that was an interesting day because what happened is we were really fighting the forces, the bureaucratic forces in the bureau to keep this going alive. And what I had done the week before, I had spoken to Robert Vaccaro, who was somehow involved in the Pizza Connection case of uh, people that he knew in Sicily. So we set up a deal where I told Robert, let's go down to, let's fly down to Sicily, do a little vacation, you know, back at the homeland and, and meet some of your people because he suspected me. My cover was, they thought I was a drug dealer. You know, even though you're not supposed to deal dope and I was cautioned by that by Greg, I told Robert we were leaving that morning. I was sending a limo to get him so we could fly on JFK to Italy. So the next morning, we hit the house, and of course, he was arrested, and everyone was arrested. And what they did was, is of course, when they put two and two together, that I was, uh, you know, uh, who I was, they in turn uh, approached them and said, look, Jack Garcia is an undercover agent, and, you know, make sure nothing goes down with it. So, in other words... They, they knew in advance that I was an undercover, but they didn't believe it. Even for like weeks to come, they thought I was just a rat. He goes, there's no way that guy was an undercover agent. I, and I guess it's because of my size, you know? So anyway, so they get arrested and all that. And the trial then is set up. But the interesting thing about the trial was that Arnold Scutieri wanted to do a global plea, which, you know, as a prosecutor, is a home run to do. Yeah, you know, it means everyone takes a plea deal and it's all coordinated and you get rid of everybody. You convict everybody all at once. Correct. But Greg De Palma refused to be part of that global deal, even though they set up a meeting with Arnold Scutieri and Greg. Now, Greg was from the John Gotti school, whereas you remember the old time mobsters, they do not want to admit their guilt. And the majority of that is because they don't want to stand up there and allocute the fact that, right, do allocution that, yes, I am a member of a crime family, the Gambino crime family, which, remember, this is supposed to be a secret criminal society. So it doesn't exist. So by going up there, it's like very painful. And for them to say, and you're not supposed to say, yes, my name is Greg De Palma. I'm a member of the Gambino crime family. Right. And that is that is oldest of old school, this idea that, of course, you never cooperate, but you don't even take a plea. So the Palma was that old school. Right. Like John Gotti. Remember, John Gotti, when he berated his son about taking a plea, even if he what was his famous quote, even if I had a I was accused of robbing from the church and I had the steeple sticking out of my butt, you don't admit to it. Exactly. So Greg was not going to 
to do that. And also, he was embarrassed about what's going on. So, of course, you know, he refused. Everybody else took a plea, which is a home run. We went to trial with Greg DePalma. Now, what happened was I was working other cases. They were trial. They were trying to protect my identity because they didn't want it exposed. And so anyway, I they went there. They cleared out the room. And like I said, they were just playing. Now, the fun, the interesting part about it, when Greg De Palma, this is how to be actually, I, I laughed. I'm testifying, right? And the last tape we played was when he, rec- it was in conversation with me, mocking the United States Attorney's Office and the FBI when he was arrested on the Scores case, saying, yeah, these idiots, I didn't shave for five days. I was actually drooling, and I was wearing my oxygen. And he goes, but I had the oxygen full face mask for effect. And he goes, and I'm in a gurney, and the uh, judge had to come to see me in the hospital, like I say, was dying. Yeah, those... MFC, you know, all the expletives you want to throw out, mocking it. We played that as the last last tape. So when he goes, no more questions, I walk out, and as I'm walking by him, you hear him going, you cocksucker. Right. You know, (laughs) but it was typical. It was typical, Craig. And there he was sitting there when I saw him. He had two attendants from the hospital prison. I remember right? that. He had a little blanket on him. Yep. A little, he had Oreo cookies. He was unshaven, having the, the, the oxygen. And everybody in the jury went from looking at me to looking at him. And it was kind of like, we got, you're doing the same thing now, pal. You I, know? I, I remember the big dispute that he wanted to be on a gurney in front of the jury during the trial because he was putting on this whole... <laughs> Routine. So I got to ask you a, a, a lawyer question here. How on earth did Greg De Palma's defense lawyers cross-examine you? Because when you put a cooperating witness on the stand, which I've done many times, of course they have dirt. Of course they have baggage. Of course they've committed extortion and killed and they live lives of crime. So that's easy pickings for cross-examination. But you are an FBI agent. So And everything you said and everything that these guys said you had on tape. So what on earth did these defense lawyers do when they cross-examined you? Well, you know, it, it's true what you said. What they build, try to build up was that I lured Greg with gifts. Oh, you know, boy. With, I, I lured him also the fact that when we would go out, I would even go as far as buying Greg food for his home. That Greg was this broken down old man right. who was just, you know, the usual... You know, the mafia flu, as I call them, when they all show up in of wheelchairs. Yeah. And, and, you know, he was the poor guy that here he was, met this guy who worked undercover and he did this and uh, and kind of persuaded him, which, you know, a lot of people would look at because, look, Greg had some major health issues. OK, he was down to like a half a lung. But keep in mind, though, Ellie, he smoked about two packs not of regular cigarettes, which is bad enough. He would smoke the camels, and when he needed cigarettes, he would rip the filter off. <laughs> wow. Right? And, and here is a guy with cancer. The guy was like a cockroach. You couldn't kill him. He was unbelievable, this guy. He was always everything. He survived lung cancer, and later on, like a couple years later, you know, he died. But, you know, he was a true gangster with the fact that he didn't plead. 
let me uh, do a little psychoanalysis of you for for a moment, if I could. Do you ever feel or did you ever feel any sympathy or any sorrow for Greg De Palma and others? And as you said, he was convicted and he ended up dying in federal prison. Um, you did. You do write in your book at one point, quote, I enjoyed the company of the wise guys. So did you ever have a hard time sort of drawing that line? And did you ever feel badly that they ended up going to jail and dying in jail? You know, it's funny. It is funny when you're out with them because they are, you know, like central casting Goodfellas. Uh, Just like you pictured when we went out to dinners, we would bring the strippers with us. We would be all fun, guys picking up, doing karaoke. It was always loud, funny. It, it, It was just your typical guy. It was fun to do that. But at the same time, I always try to keep it in perspective that these guys that I am laughing with would also kill me in a heartbeat. So I had to keep that in perspective at all times. I do want to talk a little bit about family. I don't want to get too deep into it, but did your work as an undercover obviously stressful and demanding and requires you to work bizarre hours and travel? Did that have any impact on you and your married man and and your family life? You know, I'm blessed to have my wife. Uh, My wife's father was a New York City homicide detective. And so she kind of grew up in the life, you know, and my wife is so supportive and I owe her the success for all my undercover work. And I'll tell you why, because it's important for your wife or your spouse to support you and be understanding of what you're doing. Because if not, then you're going to have head issues. You're going to be out there, not with a clear head, to make these decisions. You're going to be worried about your home life. My wife understood that I had to see Greg on Christmas. My wife understood that I had to miss certain things. My wife understood that I took a phone call from Greg at her mother's wake. That it was that made me feel good, and I am so appreciative to her for allowing this to happen. Now, of course, when I took that phone call from Greg, I couldn't say I'm at a wake because he would then come. He would say who? Right. Exactly. exactly. Come on, Jackie boy, I'll bring the boys. Yeah. So it, 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 that whole living a second life, being this so-called acting life or persona, when you work full-time as an undercover, undercover work could be a cameo appearance, could be a couple of days job, but when you're in full into it, you, that's the persona you, you take. So I owe my family, you know, the support. And I think that's very important and taking on any task as an undercover agent. God bless them. God bless your wife and your family. Well, Jack, thank you so much for joining me today. It's, it, it's been a pleasure. It brings back a lot of great memories. And, and look, what you did will, will live in history. And uh, you did a lot of good. And uh, I'm glad that you're, you're still doing well and that your family is still still doing well. Uh, so thank you very much for joining me. Well, I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Ellie. Bye-bye. Here's something that struck me about Jack during our interview. He's a relentlessly upbeat, gregarious, energetic guy. You can readily understand how anybody, even mobsters, would welcome him into their circle. 
And that charisma, that force of personality, is a big part of what made Jack the very rare law enforcement officer who was able to pull off a true double life. One as a mobster, and one as an FBI agent and family man. But I keep coming back to this, and don't lose sight of this. What Jack Garcia did was unbelievably dangerous. One slip, one misstep, and as Jack himself put it, these same guys he was laughing with would have put a bullet in his head. He wouldn't even have seen it coming. TV and movies would have you believe that this happens all the time, that the FBI gets an undercover who penetrates deep into the family. But as Jack and I discussed, it's really only ever happened twice, largely because it's just so dangerous. And part of me wonders if it'll ever happen again. It's got to be even more difficult to pull off now, given that the mob has now been burned twice, and given how much information about a person is available online. Imagine trying to backstop a phony undercover identity, as Jack put it. It might be near impossible. Whether the FBI ever gets an undercover embedded in the mob again, this much is certain. Jack Garcia will forever be part of mob history. On the next episode of Up Against the Mob, we'll talk with former FBI Special Agent James Gagliano, who was tasked as a rookie agent with safeguarding Sammy the Bull Gravano, the former underboss, to the legendary Gambino family boss, John Gotti. When Gravano flipped, he instantly became one of the most important and most endangered cooperating witnesses in mafia history, and Jim drew the task of protecting him. That's it for this episode of Up Against the Mob. Thanks again to my guest, Jack Garcia. If you like what you heard, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners to find the show. And as always, please send us your thoughts or questions to letters at cafe.com. Up Against the Mob is presented by Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm your host, Ellie Honig. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tadashur. Music is by Nat Wiener. The cafe team is Matt Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Noah Azalai, and Jake Kaplan. Special thanks to Nate White for his help with research. I'm Ellie Honig, and this is Up Against the Mob. <laughs> <laughs>